0: This episode of That Time of the Month is brought to you by Essential Goodness, a local indie bath and body company in Nashville, Tennessee. Visit their store on Etsy, My Essential Goodness, and get 20% off by using the code TTOTM. All of their products are 100% made with natural ingredients and fragrance only with essential oils. Feeling blue?
1: What do you do? We got stories to see you through that time of the month.
0: That time of the month.
2: Hello. How are you doing? Welcome back. Happy New Year. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. Whatever else you might have celebrated. How's everyone doing tonight? We're good. Good. Has anyone had a rocky start this year? Anybody? You, Will, yes. way in the back. Patsy, you've had a Rocky start. Uh, Melanie asked me, I'm, I'm Chris, by the way, if no one knows me, Chris Pelney. Uh I perform here sometimes, but I'll be, I'm this evening, and I was really excited for Melanie to ask me to do this because Rocky Starts uh, is something that I specialize in doing. Um, uh, I think the best one I have, especially involving New Year's Eve or, or New Year's just in general, uh, was a couple of years ago when I just had everything terrible happen to me. One fall, I mean, I, I got dumped by my girlfriend. I could not get anyone else to date me. Um, everywhere I went, I was getting hit on by gay men. And that, there was nothing wrong with that. But at the time, it was very frustrating. It was like, well, I can't get anyone I want to date. And everyone I don't want to date wants to date me. So this isn't working so well. And then, to top it all off, I started growing breasts, which was like terrifying, and I now think it has to do with soy, and I haven't eaten soy since, Um, but that, so I ended that semester of college thinking, you know what, I'm going to come back for the last semester and really rock it out and do a great job, and the first class I went to was biochemistry, which I should never have taken my last semester of college, because that is the absolute most difficult class you could ever take, and uh, I sat down, and mind you, I, I was, uh, I don't know why, but I didn't have any jeans at that time. And so I had borrowed my roommate's jeans, um, and they were really nice. They were a pair of J Crew Salvage denim, really nice jeans, like $150 jeans. And uh, I was sitting there in class, and I was like, I was a little bloated. And so I'm sitting next to a really cute Indian girl, and then behind me is another cute Indian girl who's a Titans cheerleader. And so... I'm thinking, oh, this is like a really good start to the semester. Like, this is great. Uh, but then I feel uh, a little gas come on, and I think, well, I'll just let it out. Like, it will be quiet, and I don't think it's, I don't think it's gonna stink. And so I let it out, and it was one of those hot ones, and it just it burned. And I thought this isn't gonna be good. And in like two seconds, it was like someone had dropped a stink bomb, and I was like, oh my god. And, you know, on on an airplane, like, it's fine. Like, you can get away with that kind of thing. But in a classroom with maybe 10 people, it's like, it's somebody nearby you. And I thought, okay, well, like, this will just dissipate in a couple of minutes. And, like, 10 minutes into it, it was still there. And I was like, what happened? Like, what's going on? And I moved and I realized that it hadn't just been air. It's. (laughs) So I ran to the bathroom and it was like. It was just terrible, and so I started that year by shitting my pants next to these two really cute girls, and I was was single for the rest of the semester, Um, and my roommate didn't want his jeans back. I still have them, and I almost wore them tonight, actually. That would have been a good story, but I I don't have them on right now. But anyways, that was probably one of the rockiest starts I've ever had, Uh, but let's bring up the first person to rescue that story. one of the most talented people I've ever seen perform. She's a comedian, a writer, an actor, or actress. I never know. Do you? I don't know. Is it actor or actress? I don't know. With two R's, maybe? Actor? I don't know. Uh, but she does a show here called Comedy Pug Hugs, and it's really fun. It's stand-up, and it is sketch comedy, and a little music sometimes, right? Yeah. It's really cool. And uh, part of the proceeds go to helping pugs, right? rescuing pugs and stuff she has two or three or four I don't know but they're cute anyways um, so let's bring Miss Paulina Combo to the stage
3: thank you Uh, whenever my boyfriend has a toot in his cubicle he always sprays it a bunch of hand sanitizer so the alcohol gets rid of the toot smell that's for you guys for your new year's resolution Oh, man. so my story is actually pretty old. Uh, I think it was almost ten years ago. I called it the Cincinnati Death Machine. All right, are you the type of person who looks for signs from the universe? Yeah, me neither. <laughs> if I was, then the events leading up to me leaving the country would have deterred me from leaving at all. My study abroad trip to Europe was planned for the summer between my sophomore and junior years of college, Which is pretty common for us dorky white kids. Uh, I had recently made the transition from dorm to apartment, so I wasn't in any hurry to go back to my hometown of Franklin, Kentucky. I hung out with my new roommates until the day I was to leave for Europe and timed it out so I'd only have a few minutes to spare between the time I arrived and when my dad and sister would drive me to the airport and leave this country. Unfortunately, our first flight was out of the Cincinnati airport, which is a three-hour drive from my hometown. This was a huge drop-me-off-at-the-airport favor, but since I would be gone for nearly six weeks, it wouldn't make sense to pay to leave my car at the airport. At the last minute, the decision was made to drive my car, a 10-year-old Volkswagen Jetta that had not seen much regular maintenance other than oil changes. We loaded up my two gigantic overstuffed and overweight suitcases and headed up north to the Kentucky-Ohio state line. The drive was spent reiterating every detail about my trip to my dad, For the 50th time, who I was traveling with, where I was staying, who I was staying with, who was paying for all this. Literally the second the airport came into view over the horizon, something flipped off in my car and it completely shut down. All the power went out, the steering wheel wouldn't budge, and it just died on the side of the road like a trusted oxen on the Oregon Trail. (laughs) My dad got out to look under the hood but looked more confused staring at the German engineering than I later would trying to figure out a German train schedule. At the time, my dad was a police officer, so he called the local police to come give us a hand. I was scheduled to arrive at the gate five hours before our flight because we were a group of 19-year-olds from colleges all over the southeast with shiny new passports flying out of the country for the first time, and the time was fast approaching. The officer drove, drove me the rest of the way to the airport while my dad and sister waited for a tow truck My dad didn't have a cell phone So I gave him my old Nokia chunk To use and keep in this emergency situation This was back when cell phones were just phones which, which meant it didn't have texting or internet So it wouldn't have been much use to me in Europe Unless I needed to sit and play a nice long game of Snake I even packed a separate alarm clock back then Before our amazing smartphones made things like compasses Alarm clock, calculators, address books, Walkmans, cameras, thermometers, obsolete. I was delivered to the airport in the backseat of a police car. I'd like to tell you this was foreign to me, but when you grow up the kid of a police officer, you get used to to cars with plate glass barriers and back seats that only open from the outside. We call this the cage, where I'm very well, many drunks, Oh, well, where I'm well aware. Why did I put so many (laughs) W's? Many drunken stone perpetrators have barfed and peed on this very bench seat I was just had last, since it was last hosed off. You guys get it. (laughs) (laughs) I could tell the cop was doing his duty to help me, so it wasn't trying to be my bellhop. He begrudgingly helped me take my bags to the escalator, then set me free on the stairway to heaven. I was alone in the middle of the night, at an empty airport with no phone and no one to talk to, with the added weight of wondering what happened to my dad's sister in primary mode of transportation. Slowly, the other members of my traveling party started to assemble. There were about a dozen other college kids my age, with matching luggage and worried parents. We gathered in a circle of carry-ons and neck pillows, and I told them my tale. I think some of them felt uneasy, like all this stuff was a bad omen, or maybe I was cursed. Also, the movie Final Destination was still relevant. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So we were all a little skittish about flying with a group of students. The rest of the trip went smoothly. Some NyQuil, a couple layovers, and a few in-flight movies later, and I was getting settled into my host family's house in Austria. I bought a calling card, found a payphone, and called home to see what happened with my car. I really hoped it was something simple that could be replaced, but no, it needed a new transmission. It was going to cost over $1,000 to replace. My dad and sister ended up having to get a hotel room and then rent a car just to get back home. Somehow, in all the commotion, my dad lost my cell phone after being in charge of it less than 24 hours. So that was gone forever. My little sister managed to remember to grab my car CD player cover. If this is something you don't remember, it was a safety feature to keep your non-factory CD player from getting stolen. You would just pop off the face plate and stick it in your purse. Because all felons are dying to get their hands on is a $99 stereo from Best Buy. (laughs) The mechanic at the Volkswagen dealership was extra nice. They didn't charge me to keep my car there the entire time. And they even dropped it off to me at the airport the night I was coming back. So the night that we did arrive back in Cincinnati, picture it. I've been in Europe for six weeks. I haven't driven or done anything other than walk and ride public transportation for over a month. I've been traveling all night and gone backwards seven time zones, and now I have to find my car in an airport garage and drive over three hours back home alone. Also, I didn't have a cell phone. Also, I realized I didn't have any music since my sister took my CD player faceplate. I was exhausted and it was pitch black the whole way back. I'm pretty sure I spotted a UFO, although no one believes me. I made it home finally, although I had to stop at every rest stop to jump around and wake myself up. The highlight of the trip was a Taco Bell drive through when the person on the other end of the speaker asked if I wanted to try the new Crunchwrap. Uh, hell yeah, tell me more. What is this new Crunchwrap? I was just finding out about this Mexican masterpiece. wanted to know everything. Um, so the three-hour drive felt like 30. I've driven from Nashville to Los Angeles in a Ford Focus, and somehow this felt longer. The only thing I had to keep me company were the printed MapQuest directions, which I was deciphering backwards to navigate my way home. <laughs> finally, I pulled up to my parents' house, where everyone was was sound asleep, but there were a couple lights left on for me. I stumbled up the stairs to my old bedroom and went to a deep hibernation. I finally arrived safely home from my six-week adventure. Before the trip, I was given lots of advice, solicited and otherwise. Keep your money in a pouch under your shirt. Pack things in your shoes to save room in your suitcase. Don't fall asleep on trains. If a gypsy throws their baby at you, don't catch it. (laughs) Nobody could have warned me that the scariest, most dangerous part of my trip was getting to and from the airport.
2: Thank you. Do you guys want to find a seat? We got one here. Uh, there's one back there. A young lady is pointing. She's saying there's a seat there. Are you wearing perfume? Are you Okay. Yeah. You, you showered. Okay. Yeah. She's good. She's okay. Well, that was wonderful. That was really good. I, I uh, on on the flight oh, there and back, did you take like any sleeping meds? Anything like that? Yeah, I had a whole bottle of Nyquil. Well. You like, took a whole bottle of Nyquil that's the worst like flying like Europe is great to go to but flying there I flew to Africa one time too and that was the absolute worst and I took like all the sleep meds I could and I still couldn't fall asleep and I I was in like this weird like meditative state of like not asleep but not awake either and everyone has pictures of me because I went with Belmont and everyone has pictures of me just like mouth breathing with a neck pillow and an eye shade on and it's like I use it on all my online dating profiles now but and I'm single so um was wonderful. Our next performer is a young lady. She's a freelance writer. How new are you to town? Um, one year. One year. She moved here from LA with her husband. And who do you freelance for? Who have you freelanced? Um, for a bunch of different corporate clients. And nobody good. Nobody good. Just the man. You've been writing for the man. You haven't been sticking it to the man. All right. Except for tonight. You're sticking it to the man. Uh, so, what's bringing Amy Townsend to the stage and her story? The grass on the other side is astroturf. Okay.
4: So, if there's one thing I know, it's this: the only thing better than getting a job is quitting a job. And I should know because I've quit more than fifty. How does this happen? Well, I've always been a person with a lot of ambition, but not a lot of motivation, which makes for a lot of rocky career starts. When I was a kid, I wanted to be a writer, so I wrote a short story about a girl named Amy who runs away from home only to be found by her real parents, who were, of course, the king and queen. It won first place, the prize for which was to make my book available in the library, and that 20-page short story remains my best body of work to this day. (laughs) It was shortly after I achieved my dream of becoming a published author that I realized I'd rather live in imaginary worlds than create them, so in junior high I decided I would become an actress. Unfortunately, our small town didn't offer much in the way of acting opportunities, so I had to create them where I could, in the after-school job market. My first job was at Arby's, where I played the role of a cashier for five months before it became clear that being a roller skating waitress offered a lot more dramatic fulfillment, not to mention tips. So I worked as a car hop for exactly one day before I dropped a tray full of food and skated into a wall. It's the only way I know how to stop. (laughs) I quit before the manager realized I'd lied in my interview, and I probably wasn't on the roller derby team. (laughs) When my Meals on Wheels career was tragically cut short, I decided I would be a high-powered career woman, so I took a job as a nights and weekend receptionist at the city's oldest and probably definitely haunted funeral home. There was plenty of opportunity to hone my acting chops by staging fake funerals in my downtime. I was going through a total goth phase. But, like most good things, it couldn't last. I was graduating, and my parents informed me that they wouldn't pay for college if I majored in theater, so I decided to become a journalist. In college, rather than gaining valuable experience in my chosen field, I continued my exploration of dead-end jobs. Before I knew it, I'd accumulated W-9s for more than 30. There was nothing I didn't try my hand at. Data entry clerk? Yes. Shoe salesman? I did it for a full four hours until I left for my lunch break and never came back. (laughs) Ice cream truck driver? That job was super boring the only fun part was seeing how far the kids would chase the truck until I finally stopped to let them buy ice cream. Oh, I even worked as a magician's assistant at a local theme park, and it turns out there's a reason most assistants are very petite. When I couldn't fold all 5 feet 7 inches, 140 pounds of myself into a ball small enough to fit into the false bottom of his disappearing trunk, Dexter, the amazing magician, had me fired. My parents thought my endless parade of jobs was just a phase. Once I graduated, I would surely settle into my career as a journalist and grow up. I wish I could say they were right. I had the best of intentions. With my journalism degree clutched in my hands, I dutifully got a job as a reporter with a small weekly. The paper had been there over 100 years. I was there for less than one. I like to think it was because the job wasn't challenging enough for my active imagination, but the truth was I had a taste for moving. That's when I found the one job that was beyond anything I could have imagined for myself. I still remember the day I saw the audition notice for the Renaissance Festival. (laughs) I finally had found a group of people more delusional than me. (laughs) And we were all ready to believe that we'd been transported back into medieval times. (laughs) As the only woman with all her teeth and a body weight less than 200 pounds, I was immediately cast as Mary Boleyn, the mistress to King Henry VIII, (laughs) I was very popular. It was awesome. I took to it so much, I didn't want it to end. When the summer was over and the fair closed for the season, I knew I had to follow my dreams of becoming a real actress. So I did what any small-town girl with stars in her eyes would do. I moved to Miami. (laughs) My reasoning was this. I wanted to be with my boyfriend. While I waited to be discovered on the steamy streets of Miami, I took a job in marketing for a cigar factory in Little Havana. I soon discovered a good use for my creativity, writing exaggerated marketing copy. For better or worse, I had a real flair for it. My cigar factory job led to a series of marketing positions. And that year, I worked in two event planning departments, a skincare manufacturing company, and the American Welding Society. Time flew by, as time does, and my dreams of being an actress had all but disappeared when a friend asked me if I wanted to come with her to an audition, and that was all it took. The acting bug bit me again, and the fever took hold. I quit my latest marketing job, and for the next year, threw myself into the business of being a professional actress in Florida. There wasn't an infomercial or independent movie shoot that I didn't audition for or work in. Success had me giddy. Surely I was ready to make the big move. I thought, yes, so I packed my bags and moved to Chicago (laughs) because, after all, I was a serious actress, not an L.A. starlet. For two years, I tried my hand at a variety of professions while half-heartedly trying to be an actress in the Windy City. In that time, I had three jobs, jobs as different as could be. I was a marketing manager for Panera Bread Company, still crave that broccoli cheese soup. I worked as a bartender at Coyote Eggly, not exactly a lateral move. Mm. Weekly dance classes were obligatory, as was a wardrobe a stripper would be proud of. But possibly my most notorious job was working as a producer on the Jerry Springer Show. (laughs) My first and only week on the job was spent teaching guests how to fight on camera. (laughs) The most important rule is don't wrestle each other to the floor because it makes it harder for the TV viewers to make out what's going on. (laughs) Ultimately, though, it was my husband's job as a concert lighting designer that finally prompted my big move, L.A. We lived there for two years, and I didn't so much as set foot inside a theater. Why would I? Truth being told, somewhere along the way, I'd realized that what I really wanted to do, but maybe I'd always wanted to do, was write. My husband's career has brought us to Nashville, where we're planting roots far and wide. And although I do sometimes miss the fast-paced lifestyle of starting a new job every other week, (laughs) it turns out I like my life as a writer for hire. And through my clients, I've worked at an Australian beauty company, cleaned homes in Brooklyn remodeled condos in Naples, and explained employee hiring policies to new recruits at Fortune 500 companies. Not to mention my seem-to-be-finished book about reincarnated goddesses. And yes, I have the best of all worlds now, and I think I might just be pretty satisfied with the direction my career is headed. Till something better comes along, that is. <laughs>
2: I kind of did the same thing. I, I changed my major seven times uh, from music business to teaching to music business to English to pre-med to English. It was a, it was a rough go of it. Um, and then I ended up at Victoria's Secret. So it was a real rough, well not the ending but it was, it was weird. Um, um, this next performer and writer we have is Miss Bonnie Chappelle. She's performed with us a couple of times and she's always really funny. But in her own unique way I love listening to Bonnie Um, Her her notes on what I should say about her This is what she has to say Uh, Bonnie Chappell, professional nerd for over 40 years That's it So let's welcome this nerd to the stage Miss Bonnie Chappell (laughs)
0: <laughs> no,
2: it's
1: good. It's good. Huh? No. <laughs> no, I'm just messing. I, was, I was
0: just
1: Thank you, Chris. Hello. I am a professional nerd, a software developer. I have been for over 40 years. Companies usually tuck me away deep in a maze of cubes, in a quiet maze where I could think. Think. That's what they pay me to do. Folks in the quiet wing just sit and do their work. On business trips, I had always been sent alone. I flew alone, drove to a plant alone, ate my meals alone, and after work, wandered a mall alone. I did not enjoy business trips. My solitary life was about to get a little more exciting. Just a little bit. I was one of six people assigned to support a user acceptance test in Toronto. Business trip with five other people three of whom were friends. One of them was my best buddy, Libby. This might be enjoyable. We would fly into Buffalo, drive to Toronto, and then, on the way home, visit Niagara Falls. How cool is that? In college, I had learned to travel light. I never knew how far I would have to walk, carrying everything I had. So I carefully selected exactly what I would need. I had two bags to carry. One was my laptop, and one was a similar sized bag of clothes. I was ready. Monday. In the past, I had been expected to be at the customer site first thing Monday morning, so I would travel on my time. This time, we were flying on Monday, during business hours. This was great. I arrived in plenty of time, checked my bag, kept my laptop, got through security, waited with my friends. It was a good flight. I had a window on one side my best buddy Libby on the other side. Yes, it was good. At the Buffalo Airport, we waited for our checked luggage. I waited, and waited, and waited. Finally, no more bags came out the chute, and I was still waiting, bagless. The airline rep told me uh, my bag would likely be at the hotel by morning. That wouldn't be too bad. At the hotel, I asked if they supplied general toiletries. He gave me a toothbrush and toothpaste and told me I could buy deodorant at the hotel shop, which, of course, was closed. (laughs)
0: Libby
1: says, I have two sticks of deodorant. One is almost gone, but you can have it. (laughs) In my room, I washed my underwear in the bathroom sink, wrapped it tightly in a towel to remove excess water, and placed it over a vent to dry, just in case my bag did not arrive by morning. My book was in the bag, so I read... The brochure about the hotel amenities. <laughs> I undressed, went to bed. I sometimes sleep in the nude, but I prefer to have company when I do.
3: <laughs>
1: Tuesday. As soon as I woke up, I went to the front desk to see if my bag had arrived. Yes, we received a bag last night, a small black one. just said, yes, that's it. He stepped into the back room and brought out, brought out a black bag. It was larger than mine and a different shape. Oh no, that's not mine, thank you. On the elevator, I wondered if the owner of the bag was my size. Maybe I should have said it was mine. (laughs) This great, great trip was not starting so well. When staying at a hotel, I am neat. I keep everything together so I don't lose anything. I placed my complimentary morning paper. Hooray, I'd have something to read other than the hotel amenities my toothbrush, my toothpaste, and my almost-gone stick of deodorant in a neat little pile for my return. When I called the airline from the test site, they had a bag that might be mine. They needed to know what was in it. I was more sure of what my bag looked like than what I had packed. Uh, it's the size and shape of a canvas briefcase. On the bottom in the corner, there's a light blue embroidery with arrows and a circular. It has the project name Destineer. Probably only 500 in existence. Mrs. Chappell, we need to know the contents. Um, uh, uh, Okay, um, khaki slacks, dark blue Hawaiian-type shirt with bright flowers, yellow and green flowery shirt, fat book that felt just working a few hours a day. No, this is not your bag. What number can we reach you? I don't have a number. I'm in an office without a phone. I'm borrowing a phone from someone who is not here, is not close enough to where I'm sitting to hear you if you call how about your cell phone? My cell phone is dead and the charger is in the bag. (laughs) Oh, call back this afternoon. Of course, when I called back, I had a similar conversation. That evening, when I returned to my room, it was clean. Totally clean. No morning paper, no toothbrush, no toothpaste, and no used deodorant. The maid had assumed I had checked out and my few precious possessions were tossed. Oh, no. I went downstairs for another toothbrush. <laughs> I asked Libby if I could use the car to see if I could buy a clean shirt. She volunteered to go with me. We found an outlet mall less than a half hour before it closed. The first store I bought a t-shirt that would do. Several stores later I found a shirt that fit, was comfortable, and I really liked it. The fact that it was only $5 it was a bonus. My luck was changing I also knew the new t-shirt would probably keep the maid from throwing away my new toothbrush and toothpaste. Life was good again. Things will go better now. I was optimistic too soon. On the way back to the hotel, we could not get the GPS using, work, unit working. As Livy drove, I kept pressing buttons and nothing happened. Later, much later, we found out there was two GPS units and we had the one that was broken. Wednesday. As as soon as I woke up, I went to the front desk. No bag. From the office, I called the airline a few times. Similar conversations. Even with a clean shirt, this was getting tiresome. But I managed to keep my sense of humor in perspective. After all, I've done backpacking and primitive camping. This was just an inconvenience. Just before we left for dinner, called one more time. Yes, Mrs. Chappelle, we found your bag. It never left Nashville. Somebody set it aside and just overlooked it. We will mail it to you. Mail it to me? Where are you going to mail it? I leave here tomorrow. Don't worry, you'll be in your hotel in the morning. Obviously, mail it meant something different to them than it did to me. That evening, we went to Toronto for dinner. We had a great meal at a cafe-style bar. The company that produces Fireball, a Canadian whiskey with cinnamon, was giving away shots. I found out I like Fireball. Later, we wandered downtown and wound up at the Sky Needle. Everyone wanted to go up except me. I don't like heights. No problem. I didn't mind hanging out uh, alone at the bottom. Time passed, tourists thinned out, the ticket booth closed, the lights dimmed, elevators were still coming down, but they were less frequent and fewer people on them. Could my friends have forgotten me and gone back to the hotel? I could be overlooked in a large group but we were a group of only six. Surely one of the five would have realized there was more room in the van. How could I be forgotten by a woman who gave me her used deodorant? (laughs) (laughs) When my friends finally returned, they explained the main elevator takes people to the top platform. The tickets they bought were the tip-top of the tower. Only six people at a time can go to the top. They had waited in line for almost two hours. Thursday. My bag was waiting for me at the front desk. Wow, clean underwear. We had a short meeting summarizing the test and left for Niagara Falls. As we checked into our new hotel with rooms off the thickly carpeted halls, I was told my room was in the annex. The annex was an old-style two-story motel room with uh, rooms off the cement outdoor hallway. It was across the parking lot behind the main hotel. All the reservations had been made by the same admin using the same travel service Everyone had a room in the hotel. I was the only one mysteriously assigned a room in the outhouse. (laughs) After settling in our rooms, we went to see the falls. They were magnificent. We wandered along the river. We selected a restaurant with a deck overlooking the falls. After sundown, they turned colored lights onto the falls. Good food, good friends, fantastic view. As we went back to the motel, it started thundering. As I walked across the parking lot to the annex, it started to sprinkle. As I climbed the exposed steps to my room, the sky opened up with a downpour. I looked up into the pouring rain. I spread my arms out and yelled, Of course! Why not? (laughs) Friday, our trip to the Buffalo Airport was uneventful. As I checked in, I looked at the baggage uh, check-in scale in front of me and hesitated. I looked at my poor, defenseless, wayward little bag. Surely the rough start was finally over, but did I want to risk it? Oh, what the hell! I have clean underwear at home, and tossed and checked in my bag.
0: That's what you get for going
2: to Buffalo. I usually like to uh, bounce my commentary off someone's story and, and say, "Oh, I've I've been there, but I've never been there. That's pretty bad." <laughs> That's pretty terrible. I've
0: been to Buffalo. It's pretty bad. <laughs> so are the Bills. So, yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: We're not fans of that. Oh, I got a Bills fan here. Who said that? No, I was like, they, they need something. They do need something. They need a lot. A
0: new team. Yeah.
2: Anyways. <laughs> um, there are a few, what I would describe, existential experiences. Uh, losing your wallet is probably one of them. Your suitcase with all your underwear is probably another uh, sometimes when I go to Starbucks and my phone is almost dead and I don't, I can't find a charger, that's a really existential moment for me. Um, but man, what a what a terrible trip! Does that happen to you all the time, or is it just that? Oh my gosh!
5: I've only had that happen once, and on a direct flight.
2: Do you do you wear like four pairs of underwear now when you go? <laughs> <laughs> four four bras, four pairs of underwear. <laughs> Every show, if you've never been here, we have five women and one man, and we call it the man the token male. Um, and tonight's token male... Have you performed for us before? As a tandem. As a tandem, yeah. So his wife, Patsy, performs here a lot. She's great. And uh, Herman has performed with her one time. Uh, we had a live show, I think. Were they at that one? It was a prom show that they did. It was great. They had a great story about... You guys are high school sweethearts, right? Yeah. Yeah. So... They they had this great prom story, um, and they went back for it. It was cute. Um, Anyways, we're going to bring Herman up here. Uh, Herman is a longtime storyteller in the rich tradition of East Tennessee. After growing up as a farm boy in Appalachian, East Tennessee, he went on to teach mathematics in community colleges in three states for 40 years. Add that up. I don't know. That's three states, 40 years, man. He retired from teaching four years ago and now exclusively tells stories, both from his Appalachian roots and from his treks into larger society. Non-telling pursuits include traveling with troubadour Patsy and finding time to be with two sons, two daughter-in-laws, a grandson, and a grand dog. So let's bring Mr. Herman Lawson to the stage. My
6: year of coaching college basketball. I was a community college math professor my entire career. My first math teaching job was at Southeast Community College in Cumberland, Kentucky. It was 1971. Segregation was waning, integration was on the rise. When I arrived on campus, I found out that no basketball coach had been hired that year. Just as suddenly, I was told the three new faculty recruits, me of course being one, would coach. So there was me, a math professor, Don Page, a philosophy professor, and Pete Smith, a student counselor. We were the furthest thing from a staff of coaches, mind you. We were alternating coaches. We alternated duties with practices and games. And because integration was just settling in, we actually had alternating teams. Some with primarily white players, some with primarily black players. To top it off, we had alternating coaching styles. Pete Smith was a redneck railroader who somehow, for some unknown reason, eked out a counseling degree. He talked down to his players and was overbearing and harsh. Ironically, any young person who came into contact with Counselor Pete would surely need to one day see a counselor. (laughs) Just the opposite. Don Page was a hippie philosopher with a long black beard and had his head in the philosophical clouds. The players had a very hard time following his directions. He told the players to take it to the hole whenever they saw existential angst in their (laughs) opponent's eyes. (laughs) and to align our defense in accordance with the phenomenology of the other team's offense.
1: <laughs>
6: then there was me. i
1: described
6: describe my coaching as a laid-back Democratic style. I wasn't above adapting in accordance with player suggestions. Basically, I was open to any and all advice, especially if I thought it might help us win. The, bu- the black players were more consistent in coming to practice and games, so the team became increasingly black. The heart of the team was Chucky, Amos, and Delmar. Chucky was a five-foot-eight point guard, Amos, a leggy forward, and Delmar, a handsome, muscular post player. All three of them were alert to the changes going on in society and in the area. They loved Sanford and Son the only show on television featuring black actors. They loved being a part of Southeast Community College, yet they faced snarling racist remarks so often when coming anywhere near white society. Chucky was a practical joker, always clowning around the life of the party. Delmar was a ladies' man among both black and white girls. Amos was both funny and proud. He deeply understood black pride and always let you know where he stood. The most exciting game I coached was the game against St. Catherine. St. Catherine was long distance away and we had no money for lodging. Not surprised by that, I'm sure. My wife, Patsy, down here, assisted me, (laughs) and we jammed ourselves and 10 players into the school van to go to St. Catherine, which was 10th ranked among junior colleges in America. Our motley crew had afros and carried boom boxes. Mm -hmm. We full-court pressed them the entire game, Mm -hmm. thanks to several coaching suggestions from the players. (laughs) Chuckie's jokes kept us loose. We were hot. Chucky was hitting from midcourt. Amos completed one of those slow-motion, long, leaping layups that looked just like Michael Jordan. It seemed like he took one-and-a-half steps to get from midcourt to the bucket. Delmar, meanwhile, was pulling down bushels of rebounds at both ends of the court. We kept close but could not defeat Delmar on their home court. The final score, St. Catherine, 104. Southeast, 96. Back in the van, we made our way to Cumberland. Boomboxes back on as we meandered through those twisting Kentucky hills. At about midnight, the music was turned off and there was passionate conversation. In those years, black pride talk often had an element of revolution about a future when they would take over. During our conversation, Amos said, When we take over, Pete Smith is going to be the janitor. (laughs) We all laughed. At about 2 a.m., we we stopped for snacks, which apparently included beer, which honestly I was unaware of. (laughs) By 3 a.m., I was so tired. I just wanted to get home, so I picked up the pace and drove faster through those dead Kentucky towns. When we arrived in our hometown of Cumberland, I eased through a stop sign instead of stopping completely around 4.30 a.m. Shortly after, I saw red flashing lights behind me and heard a siren. I was being pulled over with a busload of students. The players were hurriedly hiding the beers. (laughs) They also understood that our van being full of black players had something to do with us catching the eye of Deputy Shotgun, famous for his ticketing record. I rolled the windows down, W. Shotgun said, son, you know what you did back there, don't you? I said, yes, sir. Then he said, let me see your driver's license, so I handed it to him, confident it was valid. What? I knew it was up for renewal this month, my birth month, I just didn't realize that it was this month last year. Somehow I had missed a year and let it lapse. I saw dollar signs, then turned red with embarrassment. I and the entire van were hauled off to jail. While I was being booked and fined, I made the good decision to ask Patsy to drive the players to their homes. Only problem was I forgot to ask her for the checkbook. So off she went, and I was left at their mercy. Deputy Shotgun told me, Son, do you know that if I turn this nightstick one way, it'll break your arm? And if I turn it the other way, it'll just cut you so severely, you'll likely bleed out. (laughs) Then I was turned over to Deputy Shorty, who had a very small shirt and a very large tummy. (laughs) He told me, hey, feller... (laughs) I know where the sheriff keeps his petty cash. Let's me and you get into it and get us some. I knew better than to agree to that and badly wanted out of this unsavory situation. Finally, around 6.30 a.m., Patsy arrived back at the station. I wrote the check and she drove us home. I started to worry about word getting around campus about what had happened. The next morning, realizing I no longer had a valid license, Patsy had to drive me to work. I was so embarrassed, especially since she'd need to drive me to work every day for an entire month until my new license arrived. As Patsy and I pulled onto campus that first morning, I thought a strike or demonstration was taking place because a line of people had formed near the entrance. As we got closer, I realized it was my players lined up to greet me, a welcome party with a combined hoop and holler, teasing, we love you coach. They continued to do this every day throughout the month. I'm sure you've guessed that we were not hired back to coach. They hired a real coach with a real experience. That was definitely a wonderfully rocky start to my career that I have never forgotten.
2: Lawson. Let's give it up for him one more time. Did you ever coach basketball again? No. Did you ever play basketball? Yeah,
6: I played
2: yesterday and I got a hamstring. Do you really? You walked up here pretty good. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Can you verify that, Patsy? Yes. He he played yesterday and got hurt. Yes. He okay. Was. All right. Cool. Uh, Did you ever do statistics for the basketball team, being a a math teacher? I just feel like that's, in the movie, like if there was a movie about your basketball team, you'd be the guy who comes up with the statistics to beat the other team in the end. You did that? Yeah. Awesome. Moneyball? That kind of thing?
6: Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's pretty cool. I, I hated statistics. I failed statistics twice. And then they started letting me use cheat sheets. The teacher actually was like, "Here, like write all the stuff down on a note card, and you you'll pass." And I passed finally. But the statistics was terrible. Oh, I do remember standard deviation. Though. That's about it. Anyways, uh, let's go on to our fifth performer tonight. Uh, she is a new mother, so she is very very tired. Are you, are you awake right now? Did you have some of the free coffee that we were allowed to have? Okay, good. Um, so she falls asleep. Uh, you you got to catch her, okay? <laughs> Melanie's got her back here. You've got her right there. Um, when she's not busy being tired, she blogs about it on Mommy Festa. Is it Mommy Fiesta? Oh, Mom. Mama Festa. Mama Festa. MamaFesta.wordpress.com. Also, she is still happily married despite the events of her story. So with that, uh, let's bring Miss Amanda Ellen to the stage.
5: He helped me with the title of this. Um, It's called Sleeping Like a Baby. My husband, Jason, is pretty cool. I just need to get that said before I tell you this story. He has the ability to to lead people in such a way that they would probably drink any flavor Kool-Aid he was offering. He is also very honest. We both are. It's one of the things that makes our relationship good. But sometimes he's too honest. While I was pregnant with our now three-month-old, he said repeatedly how shocked he was that he wasn't way turned off by pregnant me. (laughs) He also compared certain body parts of mine in certain positions to African women in National Geographic, (laughs) told me I looked very pregnant in a sundress I decided to wear, and said I looked like a lemon when I wore a yellow shirt. (laughs) But again, he's mostly great. Just before the event that might make you question this greatness took place, he had been dealing with a lot. A multi-month-long trip to Florida right after we closed on our first house, some family trouble, a stressful job, and his mom was selling her house and making a huge move up here. He was also about to become a father. After a week of packing a 24-foot truck and helping his mom through the stress of thinking through how to fit an entire lifetime into her new apartment, Jason woke up at around 5.30 on that fateful day in July, packed up two cars' worth of my mother-in-law's stuff that wouldn't fit in the 24-foot truck, and drove from Tampa to Nashville to spend his first night in our new house. I tried very hard to remember all of this that night. Let's start with his side of things. After a 15-hour drive, he got home around 7.30. We celebrated by eating dinner while watching TV. Yes, we are very married. (laughs) Um, But the Netflix wasn't streaming and the downloads weren't taking, so he went to sleep pretty early. This is the opposite of our normal routine, but I had to work late and he was exhausted. So I settled in at my desk and he rested his weary head. After many precious hours of said resting in his very own bed, he wakes up the next morning, grabs his phone from the charger, and hits the bathroom for some toilet texting. (laughs) Huh, he thinks, unlocking his phone. Amanda Buck dialed me. He takes another look. 47 missed calls. (laughs) Weird. Then he checks his text messages, and the dread starts in. My one-sided conversation went like this, and... Try to visualize. It's going to be like reading tweets. But, okay. So, first, I'm locked out in the back. Then, help with four exclamation points. Followed by, now I'm in the front. This is a nightmare. Help me. All caps on that. Then, back in the back now. And the longest and last, in the front again, call the locksmith but it would be nice if you could wake up. (laughs) Before we get to his slow descent down the stairs to meet his fate, let's backtrack a bit for my side of the story. I'm sitting at my desk that night working. At around midnight, finished earlier than I thought, I took the dog out for one last pee before we headed up the stairs to bed. She finished up, and I opened the door. That's how it should have gone. But the door was locked. "'During Jason's time in Florida, I'd worked out a few kinks in our new house. "'I had gotten into the habit of not locking the handle lock on the back door, "'which can be opened from the inside no matter what. "'This was due to a previous incident that involved me breaking into the house. "'An easy feat when you're still in screen season. "'Not so in July. "'And my husband hadn't gotten the memo to lock the deadbolt instead of the handle, "'and I was locked out. "'Bad in and of itself, sure.' But I was also wearing clothes that only those who love me dearly should ever see me in. Both Jason and I wear these big, clumpy rain boots outside at night so we don't get dew all over our feet. So I'm standing in my backyard in shorts with holes in them, a non-maternity tank top that showed all three trimesters, <laughs> and the gorgeous boots with a dog who was scratching to get back inside. I was right there with her. <laughs> At this point, my pregnant brain was starting to notice this night, our first night together in a long time, our first night in our new home, was going suspiciously bad. Mm -hmm.
0: "'What
5: if this is a harbinger of horrible things to come?' my uterus whispered. (laughs) (laughs) But that was silly. We live in the age of cell phones, and I had mine tucked into the waistband of those horrible shorts." I confidently called my darling, dearest husband, who would surely answer right away and let me in. Then we would laugh and hug and flowers and ponies. (laughs) I kept thinking this as the phone rang, and rang, and rang. I tried again. The vibrate would wake him up eventually, right? (laughs) Thus began my nightmare of a night, trying everything I could think of to wake this man. I tried yelling at the window, only twice, we were new to the neighborhood after all, walking to the front and ringing the doorbell over and over and over again, so many times I saw the little thing short out. I didn't stay in the front because I had no leash for the dog and had to leave her in the backyard, which had a broken gate at the time. I couldn't find any rocks, but on the side of the house I found a plastic round disc that I hurled up at the window. While this method always works in 80s movies, it did not work in my reality. I also tried walking to the fire station across our alley to see if anyone was there. Not sure what I thought they could do, but their door was also locked. I wasn't entirely sad about this, since I was wearing what I was wearing. So after an hour and much pregnant sobbing, I used my dying phone to call a locksmith, pulling myself together as the phone rang. But the dispatch lady was very, very nice, so I quickly devolved into this. (laughs) With the locksmith on his way, I took a trip back to the front with dog in tow. I kept her on my lap while I waited, sent my last passive-aggressive text message, it would be nice if you would wake up, and tried calling the husband one more time, the 47th time. Nope. About ten minutes later, the locksmith arrived. He was cute and young, and I was very conscious of my gorgeous nighttime attire. When I told him my husband was upstairs sleeping, he was shocked, then nervous. I hope he doesn't wake up and think I'm breaking in, he said. He will never wake up. (laughs) $53 later, the locksmith was gone and I was inside of my new home. I walked upstairs around 2 a.m., way beyond ready to sleep, and found the father of my spawn sleeping soundly Mm -hmm. on his back, legs crossed Indian style, snoring loudly. Not a care in the world. The next morning, I was downstairs in my office when I heard the toilet flush. Slow footsteps descended the stairs, and Jason appeared in the doorway to my office. I am so sorry, he said. We both burst out laughing. What else can you do? Our first night together in our first house. It could have gone more smoothly, sure, but as we spent the next weeks getting the house and ourselves as ready for babydom as it's possible to be, I realized there were going to be a lot of rocky moments. Since then, we've gotten through the traumatic birth that left me walking like a cowboy, the baby who couldn't figure out how to poop, and the decisions, and the decisions, and the many, many decisions with no right or wrong answer. There will be more things to get through. There will be harder things to get through. And though it might take a studly locksmith, I know we always will get through to the light on the other side
6: of the door.
2: Oh. <laughs> Amanda <laughs> Ellen. Give it up for her. That was great. That must be a guy thing. I don't know if any other guys... Do you guys text from the bathroom? Because I do that every morning. Check everything from the bathroom. It's my favorite thing to do. I actually uh, facebook status from the bathroom this year on Christmas Day, just wishing everyone a Merry Christmas from the bathroom. I got, like, two likes. <laughs> I don't think people thought I was being serious. I was being serious. It was a Merry Christmas. Now, on to our last reader. Uh... A rough, a rocky start story with Melanie it just happened a couple, about a month ago. Um, she just had a baby, by the way, and the baby's going to actually come perform. She wrote a story. It's really good. Uh, it's, a, it's a rocky start in Melly's tum- tummy, I think. Um, anyway, so I was going over Mel's house to do the podcast, uh, I think, in November. So it was about a month after the baby was born, and uh, she said she had left the door open. And so I go to the house, and I see Melanie in the baby's room, holding the baby like this. And so I said, oh, that's sweet. And so I walked in, and I, I walked into the room, and like I'm walking closer to her, and she's looking at me like, why are you coming so close? What the hell are you doing? And I realized that she was breastfeeding. I didn't see anything, Russell, I swear. I, I did not see anything. But I bolted out, but it was... I am really blonde sometimes and don't know. I got locked inside my car last week. That's, that's a whole other story. <laughs> I'm Polish and blonde. It's really not a good combination. Anyways, I'd love to bring Melanie to the stage for her story. I believe it's about the baby, right? Okay, wonderful. Come on up, Miss me. Melanie Bear. Thank
0: you. Give a big round of applause for Chris. Okay, so my story is called Yet Another Birth Story. Okay. When I told my husband I was going to be sharing my birth story at our next storytelling show, he groaned, oh, for the love of God. He said the only thing worse than hearing about what's not going into a 35-year-old woman's vagina is hearing about what's coming out of it. <laughs> what? What a dick. (laughs) What does he know about what people want to hear? If he watched TV like the rest of us, he'd know that people consider pretty bizarre stuff entertaining. In the end, I decided my birth story was worth telling. Not just because my labor lasted 55 hours, but also because as the painful minutes turned to painful hours and the painful hours turned to excruciating days... I racked up a substantial list of people I owe amends to. Please consider this my apology letter. In hindsight, when my husband and I, what my husband and I should have done when my contractions started was try to get as much sleep as possible. Instead, we binge-watched the last five episodes of Breaking Bad,
6: <laughs>
0: and I gave myself a manicure. The pain was obviously not that bad at that point. It was technically manageable. It wasn't until day two when our natural pain management techniques seemed like a cruel joke, and I really started to let everyone have it. Uh, let's see. Our three-car minivan—oh, sorry,
6: our three—our
0: <laughs> three-car <laughs> car caravan made its way to Vanderbilt Hospital. Me and my husband and our enormous birth ball in the lead car, Tracy, our Mercedes-driving doula in the middle and my worst-case-scenario mother in the caboose. <laughs> I was sure I'd be admitted the intensi- intensity of my contractions was so severe I had to be close to fully dilated. When the on-call nurse midwife said I was only a single centimeter dilated <laughs> and turned us away, I didn't know who to, whom to lash out at first. She suggested I'd be more comfortable in my home environment. Here begins my list of amends. I cried out, No I won't because I'm not a hippie like the rest of you. <laughs> Dear on-call midwife, I apologize, I was not myself. Looking back, I realized the rashness in calling my entire medical team a bunch of hippies. <laughs> the list of undeserving victims to my sharp tongue adds up pretty quickly after this point in the story. I dished out insult after insult until I was finally offered an epidural. (laughs) For instance, I should also track down every single person inside the Vanderbilt Hospital emergency room. I apologize. You poor, sick, and injured people didn't know it, but under my breath, during each contraction, I threatened to bust open the glass of a nearby fire extinguisher and spray down every last one of you. (laughs) back in my home environment i racked up another amends dear neighbor who tried to tri- dear neighbor who tried to strike up casual conversation during one of my contractions there are things you should know when i ran outside i was trying to somehow escape the pain there you were walking your dog and gracious enough to attempt to get to know me your new neighbor I tried to inform you that I was in labor, but instead but instead yelled, Holy fucking shit, fuck, fuck, fuck! (laughs) And ran back inside. (laughs) I've tried to reach out to you, only I can't figure out exactly who you are, because I can only place you by the dog you walk, and I think it's been shaved. The next and most humble apology I'd like to make is to my husband. Russell, I know we had planned for natural childbirth, which, was, which when I was a cheery four months pregnant sounded lovely. What I couldn't have predicted was just how much swearing it would entail. I apologize for the sudden and filthy transformation of my usually squeaky clean vocabulary. Intermingle- intermingled with the random and loud strings of F-bombs was the declaration that this beautiful experience we'd been planning for years was the worst day of my life. <laughs> I followed this with a threat to jump from the fourth story of the hospital. <laughs> this was about the time when Russell started following behind me rather than beside me, so I couldn't see him cry. <laughs> Finally, at 38 hours, when the doctor administered the epidural, oh my, God. my husband was able to find some relief, watching what he described to my mom as a grizzly bear getting shot with a tranquilizer. <laughs> I hope you will accept my apology, as well as my pledge to never let our daughter see the side of mommy that her arrival invoked. <laughs> As for my mother, I'm on the fence whether or not I owe her an apology. (laughs) She flew all the way from California to be there for the birth of her first granddaughter. Shortly after she arrived, I realized there was no way she was stepping foot inside my delivery room. (laughs) Mom, I apologize for making you wait for more than a day in a tiny waiting room. But you see, in the days leading up to the birth, when I had that mild headache... It probably wasn't best for you to suggest it was a symptom of toxemia or preeclampsia and the baby could be in distress. There you were, just trying to be helpful by introducing thoughts of morbid and disastrous outcomes. <laughs> and I undermined your expert opinion by calling the midwives. The nurse asked, What led you to believe you have toxemia? Blurred vision? Shortness of breath? Nausea? Vomiting? Vomiting? As I answered no to each question, my headache quickly subsided, and my glare landed on you, Mom. Mom, I'd like to apologize. I'll admit now that you probably didn't deserve to be left out the whole time, but given my previous apologies, you may not have enjoyed it inside anymore. (laughs) To my dad, I owe another partial amends. Still in California, he was getting secondhand information from my mom, who was getting secondhand information from my husband and doula. Between my mother's undoubtedly heightened relay of information, combined with the helplessness he must have felt being 2,000 miles away, my dad, Mr. Worst Case Scenario, (laughs) threatened to sue the hospital administration. Luckily, he didn't actually call Vanderbilt. Instead, he just sent scathing emails to his USC fraternity brothers about my criminally long labor. (laughs) Sick with worry, my dad boarded a flight to Nashville. Dad, when you arrived at the hospital post-epidural, I welcomed both you and Mom back into the delivery room. I'd like to apologize for rolling my eyes when you, my former soccer coach, who was just trying to be inspiring, looked at me, teary-eyed, and said, Mel, you just got to dribble down the field and just put it in the net already. (laughs) Dad, I'd like to apologize for that look I gave you. Last, I'd like to apologize to my daughter. Honey, I'm sorry that baby Einstein will be completely useless. I know your first words are destined to either be Shit fuck or shit shit fuck Those fucking
5: hippies
0: (laughs) I'd also like to apologize For your destiny as a sad loner With imaginary friends (laughs) You see, after that experience Sweetie, you're going to be an only child (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
2: Belly Well, that is our show. Thank you so much for being here on this lovely Sunday evening. Go enjoy 60 Minutes. They're doing something fun tonight.
5: You heard, go spread the word They're funny, smart, and so absurd Happens every month It's the neatest Storytelling
0: At its sweetest